Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Blister Cinematic, our new movie podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, we are talking about the Black Country Journal, which is a new, truly different 10-minute-long film by Mallory Duncan that packs a lot into its short running length, bringing together the worlds of jazz and skiing in ways that I've never seen. You can watch the film online if you haven't seen it already. We'll include a link to it in the show notes of this episode. And you definitely should watch it, not just because I think it's compelling, but because the Black Country Journal won the Best Film Award at the Banff Film Festival. Not bad for your first film. Mallory grew up in the Bay Area. He started skiing when he was two years old. He went to school in Burlington, Vermont at UVM. And currently, Mallory lives in Bend, Oregon, where some of the scenes in the Black Country Journal were filmed. In this conversation, I talked to Mallory, who is the star and the writer and co-director of this film, about the Black Country Journal and the circumstances that led him to make it. And we do dive pretty deep into some of the very specific scenes and moments in this film that I'm going to remember for a really long time. And so with that, let's get to my first but definitely not my last conversation with Mallory Duncan. Here we go. Well, Mallory, it's great having you here on Blister Cinematic. All right, let's admit, we were just talking about this. You're following NAR, a tribute to Shane McConkie. And I love that you were like, <laughs> wait, what act do I have to follow? I appreciated your kind of humility on that front. And yet I'm also, as I told you, super excited to be talking about your new film with you, since one of the things we're going to be doing on Blister Cinematic is kind of swinging from some classic movies to like the new, new stuff. And so I I personally uh, love the kind of one-two punch we have going here, but I do also appreciate your... Uh, I'll just describe it as a tentativeness or there was, there was a, there was a nice uh, element of, I think, respect going on there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely a bit of a undertaking to follow one of the most iconic films in ski history. So <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that there's some, there's, it's going to be a drastic difference between the black country journal and NAR, but um yeah, I guess I'm excited to to be the next one to come down the, the pipeline. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that's exactly right. And again, that's one of the reasons why I am excited about this. Like, these are two extremely different films. And we're going to get into it here uh, today. And But the first thing I wanted to do, it, it is such, such a different film. I was like, I want to know how Mallory is talking about the Black Country Journal these days. What do you say to people? How do you introduce it? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's evolved a lot over the last couple months since we initially showed it. And also since the inception of the idea and, you know, when we finished shooting it, when I first, when we first showed it, it was, 
in Carbondale at five points back in April. Now it's November. So yeah, that has been quite a quite an evolution of how I actually talk about it. And also it all depends on like the landscape of who I'm showing it alongside. So at like at Carbondale, for example, it was a lot of these just outdoor oriented documentary style films. And so it was really easy to be like, yeah, this is just a ski movie. And it, it was. It was one of the only movies that actually involved skiing, skiing. at five points. Huh. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Now in November, when like all the big ski films are dropping and I'm showing it alongside like level, like a level one film, like a, you know, whoever it is, like Sam Cooch throwing down. I'm like, all right, well, now I kind of like, is this a ski <laughs> movie? Cause like there's 30% of it is like skiing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I kind of, for a moment there, especially at Banff when I was showing it, like, reverted back to like this is a movie about skiing more than it is a ski movie but simultaneously like we entered it into the snow sports category so yeah. like obviously i still believe this is yeah. a ski movie ski yeah. film but yeah now i'm describing it again as a ski film and it's about the interconnection of jazz and skiing and that's i think the most important kind of through line that describes the whole film we got to learn more about your backstory and interests. How do you make that connection between jazz and skiing? Or the better question, when did you first start making that connection between jazz and skiing? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I think that it was a crucial component of directing the film. So going into it, I didn't necessarily know that it was, that was going to be one of the most substantial um, and important components of the whole story. It was probably day two of shooting that I landed on that. Like this is the most important component of this. And this is what brings the whole thing together. That was expressed in the fact that during that first um, kind of, section of shooting it was like five days that we were shooting in bend me and pat uh the dp on the project we only listened to jazz for that entire week and our first day of shooting was like going through my album collection and like throwing on different jazz records and then quickly we were like yo this is what it's all about this is what this project's all about so yeah it going into that we had kind of a different idea or at least just not like a fully flushed out idea and then as we started actually shooting the project we adjusted the vision to really focus on jazz as this like influential component of this influential piece of the picture and how you express yourself on, on the slope. So let's talk about this juxtaposition of jazz and skiing. How are you thinking about that? And I, I take it that the element of improvisation in both jazz and skiing is something that was kind of at the front of your mind. Well, I do think that's a big piece of the picture. I do think that like the improvisational element is um, important, but I guess what it comes down to is in a way, how has that influenced my connection to the sport? I, I guess maybe that's how I'm looking at it. Yeah. And my connection to the sport is more generally looking at skiing as this creative art form and through looking at it, as a creative art form, it becomes more inspiring to me to pursue. Mm -hmm. um, my relationship with skiing has evolved so much since I learned to ski when I was two years old. Mm. 
And I think it's really awesome and incredibly, that's what makes skiing so special is, is that, you know, 29 years later, I can still have an evolving relationship with this sport. Yeah. And I guess jazz is the vehicle in which I currently, or the vehicle, yeah, is, is kind of the lens through which I look at it now mm-hmm. and how I continue to stay inspired by it now. Hmm. So that's one part, that's like one piece of yeah. how jazz um, is connected to skiing and how that, and yeah, how those two pieces work together yeah. and how it relates to me and my story in this, in this film. Yeah. Let's talk a bit more about your own background. You said you started skiing at the age of two. Yeah. Yeah. My, um, my dad introduced me to skiing when I was a little kid, um, because he loved skiing and mm-hmm. he needed a place to have me hang out <laughs> while he was going to go rip at the mountain. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, uh, started, started then and I was a weekend warrior down in the East Bay area is where I grew up just south of Oakland, a little, a, a city called Hayward. Um, if anyone's in the Bay area, then you all know where that is. Yeah. So I was the weekend warrior. So we were just bumping back and forth pretty much all my childhood. And then I eventually moved up to Tahoe when I was like 14 years old. And that was when I really, really dove in fully in the snow sports world. At 14. Yeah. 14. Yeah. And where were yeah. you doing most of your skiing then? So from ages like, yeah, age like five to, to 14, it was at Alpine Meadows. Mm-hmm which is the lesser known counterpart of the Palisades conglomerate. Yes. (laughs) And I was very, very like proud of being an Alpine Meadows kid. Ah, nice. You know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Screw those guys over at Palisades. Yeah, exactly. And I still stand by that in a way. (laughs) I still, whenever I go to Palisades, it's at Alpine Meadows. So... Yeah, love love that resort still to this day, and I I go there every winter and still ski there. But when I was fourteen, I ended up living on Donner Pass, and I was skiing at Sugarbowl for basically five years. So new resort, also kind of a small, like slightly overlooked resort. So it has that same DNA as Alpine. Um, And I don't go back there really ever anymore. It's always Alpine. It's always Alpine. But it's a great resort. I do love it. I don't know. I have absolutely no disrespect towards that. (laughs) All right. And then fast forwarding a bit through your story, you go off to college in another place where if you are trying to ski and be in college, it's a pretty good choice, right? 100%. Where'd you go? I went to University of Vermont and yeah, lived in Burlington and um yeah, skied at like almost every single, no, I'm not going to say every single because there's so many small little local resorts in Vermont, which is a special thing. But I skied at pretty much all of the major resorts minus maybe the most iconic, which kind of sticks to the roots of what I've been talking about. I never got a pass at Stowe. At Stowe. <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely like a Bolton kid, uh, Sugar Bush, Jay Peak, Mad River Glen, uh, smugs. Uh huh. Yeah. So avoided all or uh, along the four years I was there, like avoided going to Stowe pretty much the entire time. Still haven't been to Stowe. Still haven't. All right. Now, right now I'm now a trend. <laughs> we're we're starting a- starting to see a little bit of a trend. I like this. We are starting to kind of unpack a trend that I didn't even realize is a thing. But yeah, it's uh, what we do here. It's what we do here. A lot of you know, a lot of a uh, psychoanalysis going on in our in our podcast. What'd you study in college? And were were you somebody like, 
when I went off to college, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, some, some people are really plugged in, like they already have their vision and they're kind of like, I wanted to go study this and this. Did you, were you like, I want to go somewhere where I can ski or you're like, I want to do that, but I'm also pretty clear on the kind of educational track. No, I, uh, you know, I initially went to UVM for skiing, specifically racing. And then I took a year off in high school and college and I decided I didn't want to be a ski racer anymore, but I really liked the school. And, um, I thought the town of Burlington was really cool. Like great food, um, great art scene. And I was like, I was still want to go to the school, even if I'm not racing for the race program. Um, but yeah, didn't really know what I was going to do as far as academics when I enrolled. Initially, I had, I had an idea that maybe I would do creative writing or, or English. Mm-hmm. But then I realized that I don't like reading as much as an English major should. Um, so quickly took a hard right and became un- undecided. Yeah. Uh, um, somewhere through the process, I guess it was actually after freshman year, I did an internship in Traverse City, Michigan. And I got introduced to like music production and music promotion world. And I decided I wanted to be like either like a sound engineer or a music manager or do something in the music world. But UVM didn't really have like that as an option. So I decided that I would take, I would major in business and I would minor in music. And you have to, you have to select a concentration at a UVM business school. So my concentration was entrepreneurship, which is simultaneously like the best and least helpful. concentration in, bus- in the business world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cause there's turns out with entrepreneurship, you're going to have to make it all up, whatever you go and do sometimes. Yeah. There are, are some like good principles that, you know, uh, are worth maybe operating off of, but man, talk about improvisation. Yeah. There's another, yeah. Improvisation and entrepreneurship. Yeah. Those, those go hand in hand real well, as you know. Yeah. <laughs> Basically walking away with like zero concrete skills that you like, you could, you could have just like tried to start a business and you probably would have learned all the same things, but you know, they guide you and force you to, to do those things. So I can't, I can't decide if it's like, was the best idea and if I'd recommend it to other people, but, um, but I don't know. I, I also feel like, I mean, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur now, so yeah. I guess it helped me in some way. Yeah. So two things that sound like have been consistent through your life skiing and music i mean you've talked yeah. you talked about the music part was was jazz kind of it for you for a lot of your life or you were really into other types of music as well um and jazz was one among a number of them what did that look like for you yeah uh jazz got introduced to me through like i guess osmosis through my grandfather I had this really cool thing growing up where I lived in Hayward and my grandparents lived in Berkeley. And every single Sunday growing mm-hmm. up, we would go yeah. to my grandparents' house and we would have dinner there. And my we'd watch football and my dad would throw on a jazz record, like jazz records. So kind of grew up listening to jazz. Um, it's very nostalgic feeling to me now. And then in third grade, I uh, joined the band and started playing saxophone. So. Yeah, saxophone is something that I played kind of on and off since I was in third grade. Never been really good. Always been okay. Hmm. Even to now, even like today. I'm still like, I'm not great, but 
I'm pretty, I'm pretty all right. <laughs> now I want to know what your like baseline is for this, right? You know, like how good is he actually? Like, what's how much humility is kicking in right now versus um, realism? Yeah, I think like I think like honestly, I, I don't think I'm being super super humble. Okay. I think that like if you were to put me up and like next to a legitimate jazz musician, like a saxophone player, and I were to try and play, we were tr- trying to play the same song, like you would be like, oh yeah, like he's super, he's like okay, like maybe not even like maybe not even okay. <laughs> I <laughs> but mean, what I what I what I am good at is I can play really well by ear, huh. and I can play with like any instrument. Like I can find the key, and I can kind of improvise on that really well. That's my skill. Um, so I play with a lot of guitarists, mostly because that's what everyone plays. And I can, like, if anyone plays a song, like, I can usually find the right notes and it'll sound pretty good. But I'm not going to, like, blow the socks off of, like, somebody who's, like, a music connoisseur by any means. They're going to be like, oh, yeah, this dude's, this dude's, like, kind of a intermediate saxophone player. Huh. Okay. All right. It sounds like you're, you're pretty, pretty damn solid on the sax. That's what I'm going to go. I'm going to use the word solid. Okay. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay. Maybe uh, you're coming to the Blister Summit. Are you, you should bring your sax? Maybe some late <laughs> night, some late night sax sessions. What do you think? Oh man, I what have I signed myself up for here? <laughs> I don't. Know. I don't know. We could we could discuss later. But um, that let's that play it by let's play it by ear on that one. Let's play it by ear. There you go. Back to the film. Um, when did you first? start writing the opening lines of this film because this film does not this thing does not beat around the bush like we start and we're in it and my recommendation i am hoping everybody's watched it first before listening to us but you open with some lines that kind of grab your attention right away and like my recommendation is you best be paying attention when did you start formulating those lines, writing some of those things down. Yeah. July, 2020, I believe is when I, when I first wrote those lines down and I was living in a van, um, which it was, it's a nice van, but, uh, I was living in a van in the woods outside of Bend, um, Mm -hmm. off century drive during the pandemic. Um, and it was right after the murder of George Floyd. And, I was just like processing what it was like to be a black man in this like predominantly white town and, you know, just dealing with some of those, those concepts and ideas. And basically I threw a beat on and I just started writing poetry uh, or raps, whatever way, however you look at it. And that's where that poem came from. And uh, yeah, it's like, you know, obviously deals with identity, with race, um, with, um, just a lot of what was going on at that time. And so, yeah, we kind of dive straight into the black country journal with some like pretty powerful and racially charged, um, prose. Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that first section, which, which like, I know I have to talk to some people who have seen it and it evolves throughout the entire process. Like, you know, it kind of starts off like pretty heavy with that, but it definitely doesn't end that way, you know? And, I know when I showed it to one of my, like some of my friends initially, one of my friends specifically, he was like, he played it. And then like, he played like the first minute and then 
he got like distracted. Hmm. And I remember he said like, when I first heard it, I was like, oh man, like what are we about to dive into here? Hmm. But then he finished it and he was like, dude, I, like I love this film. It's mm-hmm. awesome. But yeah, the first part kind of like maybe could scare some folks away. I could see that, how that might happen just because it is like an intense topic matter. I don't know. I, I'd be admittedly disappointed if that was scaring people away. Or I would be disappointed if I learned <laughs> that it was scaring a lot of people away. I hear where you're coming from, though. And um, But yeah, I mean, the opening lines. I can't think with all this white noise around me, surrounding me, trying to figure out where my groundings be. With all this black and white and wrong and right, I'm trying to find the ground between, the brown between. See, at these depths, you might find seaweed. Defining the difference between me, my identity, and how they see me. But when I feel that pressure pressed up on my neck, I can't breathe, see? Feel like I'm pressing my back against that green screen. See, the black lives really matter, or is this scene just on repeat? Either validate them and they be on their way, or they stay sleeping, because that's where the sweet dreams lay. And I was like, all right, here we go, right away. Like, let's buckle in and see where we go with this. And I, I found myself writing these down and then I kept just writing. And I was like, well, I, <laughs> it's all really well done. And I think you are right to say, like, there are pivots in the film. Again, that like, it's a surprising opening. It stays surprising, you know, which is again, when I said like, I love that this is our follow-up episode to a conversation about a very different ski film. I'm like, yep, that's actually perfect. You know, when I was saying, God, I sure hope that doesn't sort of put people off from the jump. The biggest thing I think is that this is a 10-minute film. It is a densely packed 10 minutes, right? Um, And in fact, our Blister reviewer and our podcast editor, Justin Bob, texted me today and was like, oh my God, Black Country Journal is amazing. And that's exactly what he was like. This thing is just goes right from the minute, you know? And I think anybody who thinks like, oh, we're going to get a light 10 minutes that, you know, of sort of light and fluffy 10 minute films, like, nah, this is a, this is a rich one, lot packed in here. Yeah. A hundred percent. It definitely is like, I think in a a lot of ways it reflects poetry in that Mm -hmm. poems are short. Yep. But they can have the um, depth of like a book or a novel, yeah. you know, like, and that was kind of what I wanted to do is, you know, tell a intricate and impactful story in like as short a period of time as possible. And 10 was like the shortest that we could really make it get down to. Yeah. And yeah, we, that's what we, that's what we kind of jumped straight into it with that first poem. And yeah, I liked that you remember the words and kind of threw them out there because mm. when I was writing that down, it was a pretty powerful experience. And I immediately, I got done with it and I was like, this needs to be something more than just this poem. I didn't know what it was going to be at that time, but I mm. knew it needed to like be part of a larger something or another. So those words came before the idea for the film came. Yeah. Huh. hundred percent. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. And they kind of inspired I don't say they inspired the film, but they kind of did though. <laughs> they at least like, it doesn't define what the film's all about, yeah. but it definitely was what made me, it was where I started with it all. If that makes sense. 
The film has three parts. Isolation, part one, isolation, part two, jazz, part three, convergence. Those aren't three terms or words that neatly fit together necessarily, you know? Um, yeah. And I, I just would love to hear you talk a little bit about those three parts and, and how much those things kind of mean to you or um, if those are kind of loose loose parts to you or like very hardly defined sections for you but talk about the decision to split this into three parts yeah yeah the the decision to split into three parts was pretty that came pretty quickly because i knew it was going to be about this first poem is about this idea of feeling isolated yeah and about just trying to deal with that um and I knew at this point when we started shooting it, it was, uh, it was 2022. And so I had written that poem like, yeah, like almost two years ago. Yeah. And I had learned and processed so much at that point and I'd gone through my own journey and I had found this new connection with the sport. And so I knew that I wanted to tell a story starting at where I was at in 2020 and ending at kind of like where I was at then. Um, so isolation being the first one, that was like basically yep. what's expressed in this poem. And then I had this idea and this feeling of like, during that time period, I had found a deeper connection with skiing. I had readjusted mm -hmm. what, what inspired me in the sport of skiing and that whether you describe it as jazz or improvisation or mm -hmm. just creative expression, mm -hmm. it was, it was about connection and con convergence of, of two different ideas. And, and then it turned into, uh, as I said, we kind of like figured out, figured out that jazz was going to be like the centerpiece of it all. Mm -hmm. So anyways, I had this idea of, of isolation. I had this idea of convergence and then jazz is the part that brings it together, um, in a way. So yeah, three parts just felt like the right thing. And in, in a lot of ways, I mean, it's not like super unique this, as far as like story art goes. You know, you have a conflict, you have what story goes, you know, um, things are good. You have a conflict and you have a resolution. Yeah. And in a way that is kind of what happens in the film. So breaking into three parts felt, just felt right to me from the very beginning. I knew it was going to be three parts. I knew what one of them was going to be. I knew what the other one was going to be. It was just, how do we bring them together? And that was the middle piece. The middle piece is really, really cool. Um, so let's talk about it. First of all, I wrote a note down my, I think the funniest thing for me in the film is I just wrote down at minute 224, the, the jazz musician in the film says something like, hold on. And you make this face <laughs> that just kills me. And, um, I so funny. <laughs> so I don't know what people that really was. Love that spot. Like I've seen people, I've seen people watch it so many times. And people really pick up on that little face that yep. I made. Like, <laughs> yep. Yeah. You're kind of like, come on, man. Just it's like a, it's sort of like a, come on, man. Like, I don't really have time for this or I don't really want to be getting trapped into this conversation. And it's kind of fantastic. It's, uh, oh, yeah. that's, uh, that's, that's one of the highlights for me. But talk a little bit about, um, first of all, that person, the jazz musician, that actor, I'll say remarkable. Like that's a yeah. remarkable kind of performance. Talk a little bit about 
sort of how that happened or how that came about or the filming of that? Yeah, I have to give, I mean, so that guy, his name, um, his name is Chaz and he is incredible part of this entire film. I mean, he is the glue that brings it all together and he's not an actor. You know, he, he should be, he should be an actor. (laughs) He should be. And honestly, the reason why it's so, it rings so true and I think it's so impactful is because everything that he's talking about in that section, those are real life lived experiences that he's had. Hmm. And so kind of to touch on his role in the, the film, basically we knew we needed this middle section that was an interaction with a jazz musician. And I hit up my, um, my godmother, Tanita hmm. Fernandez, who lives in Los Angeles. I, my, both my family, both my parents are from LA. So I have a deep connection to LA and hmm. I knew when to shoot it in LA. And so I hit up Tanita and I was like, uh, Toe, I'm looking for a jazz musician. Like, do you know anybody? She works in education. Um, and so she's like, yeah, I got a few couple people. And she gave me some numbers. And I called all of them. None of them answered. Um, I got a call back from Chaz. And he left a voicemail. I was in Seattle at the time. He left a voicemail. I missed his call. I picked it up. And I listened to the voicemail. And immediately, just the way that he acts, his voice, the way he talks, his whole energy, I was like, I remember turning to my friend. I was like, this is the dude. This like, is it. This is 100% the dude. <laughs> so that was just like a lucky circumstance of just huh. finding the right person for the right role. And then I remember I sat down with him for like two and a half, three hours hmm. and uh, interviewed him about like his life. And he's a percussionist. He's not, I mean, he's a jazz musician of sorts. He's played in jazz bands before, but he's more of a percussionist than anything else. And he was just talking about his life experience and his evolution um, as, a, as an artist or a musician. And he just dropped all these gems on me of like some of the stuff he says in the film. Like he talks about playing with his, his girlfriend that he had at the time and how she learned music backwards, backwards. Yeah. which it's something that people often overlook. But that line right there is like maybe the most crucial part for me, at least one of the most crucial lines that he says is about learning music backwards. He says, he says like, so I was playing this with this this girl net, like with my girlfriend at the time. And I was like, let's just jam. You're on the keyboard. I'm gonna be on the drum. And she said that she couldn't play music. She said that she needed to have sheet music in front of her to read it. And I realized that she learned music backwards Mm -hmm. and that, stuck with me like crazy because it reminded me a lot of what my experience was as a ski racer and then what i do now as a ski racer you know i was like so locked into the idea of having to make these turns around the gate yeah and having the gates tell me where to turn it's like i forgot how to learn how to how to be free and have improvisation and like freedom with my skiing and same thing with the music like she couldn't improvise she had to read music in order to play music so she learned just like i learned to ski backwards i learned to ski race first and then i found free riding again you know granted i did i was a you know before i was a racer i was obviously free skiing but Mm -hmm. the idea is the same so yeah kind of a little side note there but Chaz, basically, the reason that he was so good in that role is because everything he's talking about are real life lives experiences. And he, we didn't write a script for him. These are the things from the interview yesterday that you said that were really, really impactful. And I just want you to riff off of these and we're going to have like a conversation. Yeah. And so we did. And that's why like 
when he's going off, like I'm making that face of like, yeah, like what are you talking about right now? You know, like what are you talking about right now, man? And then he's just saying all this really cool stuff. So yeah, it, it really came through. So I wrote this quote down as well. You already kind of went over it. Chaz says, so if the teacher is teaching you how to read music first and you're not enjoying yourself, that's backwards. That's backwards. I got real excited when I heard that line and was such a perfect articulation of something in skiing that I have been railing against for quite a while, like years. And so it's interesting to hear you talk about your version, talking about ski racing and like you have to turn right here and you're kind of this loss of freedom. You can check the historical record on podcasts and stuff I've written about. But one of the things that drives me crazy is when we start the debate about like best skis for beginners. And like now we're we're not talking metaphorically. We're talking very, very fucking literally. And yeah. I have made the argument that sometimes going with a bit of a wider platform, something with a lot of tail rocker and tip rocker, like that will be sometimes better for a never ever than this 74 millimeter wide flat tailed you know sharp edged thing and there will be people blowing back on this and it's like no that's completely wrong these people need to like be getting the ski on edge and i'm like have you ever skied with a never ever they have no fucking idea how to put a ski on edge and start like feeling their edges. It's like they're worried about how do I sit down on the chairlift and how do I get off the chairlift without falling into six people, right? And now how do I like stop or control speed? Like I think that we sometimes get so as instructors, right? And if and if we're doing the thing that we like to talk about, which is how do we help people into the sport to enjoy this sport that we all love so much, and you're still putting people on these 74 millimeter wide, it's often rental skis, right? I see it in the lift line every single time I go skiing, whether it's a powder day or whether it's a marginal conditions day. And the people who like insist like, well, we've got to teach that never ever how to get their skis on edge. It's like you are so mistaken about the actual priorities. Step number one, help that person enjoy their time in this incredibly awkward situation where they're trying to step into these skis, right? Like we have got to do a better job of how we think about this. So that line from Chaz, if a teacher is teaching you how to play music first and you aren't enjoying yourself, that's backwards. So thank you for having that line in the film. Give my give that. my thanks to Chaz. But I'm like, that's that's what that's a better articulation of what I've kind of been railing against for years. That mindset of like, we've got to make them technically proficient as quickly as possible. I'm like, you you got it backwards. So it kind of speaks to, you know, what you were just saying. There's the idea that this guy's Chaz is talking about music. Yeah. He's talking about music exclusively. exclusively. And we as skiers immediately see all these connections to like skiing. So it's just like the connection between art, music, whatever is like, it's undeniable. And I think that's what's so cool is when you watch that scene, that dialogue scene, and you hear the things that Chaz is talking about, which are about music, 
it's so easy to envision what how that affects skiing. And like what you're saying, I totally agree. I mean, about larger platforms. I mean, if I want to go into my tech nerd side of things or my gear nerd side of things, I'm like, I mean, my favorite ski to ski on, which I don't know, most people aren't going to agree with me on this, but maybe it's just Pacific Northwest, heavy snow type deal. But my like daily driver, what I'm skiing on like 80% of the time in the Pacific Northwest is a pair of forefront renegades. So you, like you, you and I, about you and I are going to get along well. That's cool. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Cool. I like that. I wasn't sure if you were going to like smack me for that one, but yeah, like that's the ski that I'm on <laughs> like yeah. all the time. So I love a, a wide platform and I totally agree that like whether it's music or it's skiing, it's so important to make sure you're enjoying yourself first and foremost, yep. because if you're not having fun, why are you out there? And how are you going to like continue to grow within within the sport? How are you going to learn if you're not enjoying yourself? So, yeah. and man, I got to say that that backstory about Chaz, you know, like somebody watching the film, I suppose I I didn't consciously think of that. Like I just was so excited by that line. But if someone was like, oh well. You know, Mallory wanted to make this point about skiing and freedom and freedom of expression and creativity. So he just went back and engineered this conversation about a jazz musician. You're like, no, this guy doesn't know anything about skiing. He was talking straight music, like 100%. And so I, I, that's actually, that makes me happy. Like those details about the backstory, about the films we're talking about, that's really cool. And, um, yeah, drives home to like, why are we talking about jazz and skiing? It's like, this is why. Yeah. 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 It's so cool. And a lot of people don't realize that. I mean, a lot of people think that Chaz is this incredible actor and he's not. I mean, he probably he might be, but he's, he's really just like this person who's had, who's lived this experience. And that experience relates to skiing just inherently because it relates to music and music and skiing. They do have a, there are similarities there. And mm. so. I remember Chaz even would start talking about skiing like and and trying to like make this connection. And I was like, no, man, like just talk about music. Just like talk about music. Because all the things that you said that really blew me away in our interview yesterday, they're all about your experience as a musician, mm -hmm. about learning to be a musician and uh, just how you grew. And yeah, there's so many lines in there that honestly get really overlooked. I think the most noticed line that people often hear the first time around are, slow down man slow down like he says that and then he says were you rushing to to die yeah like both of those lines that's what people remember because it's at the beginning and the end of the conversation but everything that happens in the middle that's where the real gems are hmm. Hmm. let's talk about the last portion of the film yeah the yeah. final finally convergence so where were the skiing portions filmed okay so the first section uh isolation that was shot in the bend area okay. so that's the burn zone all the burn zones um which are like yeah very kind of um you feel very exposed you're in this like kind of desolate landscape and then the last section there is some 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 shots from the bend area um but a lot of it is from alaska i've heard so, of it. so like the spine lines and the big like glacier like making big turns yeah. on the glacier. That's all shot up um, up in Alaska. Had you been and before? That was that was on. That was my first trip to Alaska. Trip. Was yeah, when we got all that stuff. Yeah, it was twelve days we spent out there. 
So obviously not all of it made it into the movie, but um, I think there's another movie coming out with some more of that stuff actually. Mm. But yeah, all of those, all those um, really open shots and there's this little spine line in there too. And um, that was all kind of outside of Anchorage area. Cool. Very cool. Really cool. Incredible experience. Uh, life life changing trip for sure. And I did that yeah. completely separate. I remember on that trip, basically my buddy Zach hit me up and he was like, Hey man, someone just dropped out of this Alaska trip. Do you, you have to be here in 48 hours, but if you can get here in 48 hours, you can join this trip. And I was literally on my way to sea otter, you know, bike event in California. (laughs) And I was with my friend Corinne and I was like, Corinne, like I just got a crazy opportunity, but like, I'm supposed to be at sea otter like with you in like two days, like, what should I do? And she kind of helped walk me through this decision-making process of like, well, can the clips from this trip end up in this project or that you're working on? Like, mm-hmm. or is that for another thing? And just help me weigh all the options. And, mm-hmm. and I made a decision in like six hours, like, all right, I'm going to Alaska. And I was there in 48 hours. I think the general rule is if there's an opportunity to go to Alaska, you probably just need to take it and figure out the rest later. It's probably if we can help anybody listening to this right now who is in a similar spot of like, should I? Um, the answer is yes. Figure out the other stuff later. Yeah, I think that's maybe just like a general rule of like skiing. It's like, should yeah. I be skiing right now? Probably. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I got to ask you, this is very much for just personal reasons and interests. A watch, a wristwatch is homed in on a few times, very uh, deliberately yeah. in the film. Are you a watch fan? I go back and forth. I honestly, I'm looking, I would be a watch guy, but I can't seem to find a watch that doesn't break or uh-huh. like doesn't like die too frequently. Um, am I a watch guy? I want to be a watch guy, but I'm not a watch guy. <laughs> and a, you're an aspiring <laughs> watch right watch. Yeah, yeah. I'm an aspiring watch guy. Dude, I I made it through the vast majority of my life and then but we started this Blister Craft Collective and this Crafted podcast and I was like, what are all the different sort of craft categories out there? And at one point I was like, oh, like watches, like mechanical watches. And I knew zero about them. And the more I learned about them, I, I, it is, um, I, I find them to be remarkable and amazing. And, you know, today I, I've said this before on some different podcasts, but you know, today, what are we concerned about? It's like, we've got to electrify everything. And, but then that means we've got to get better batteries, right? And what's happening to, you know, batteries are those going into landfills as we're trying to do better and electrify everything. And I'm like, well, there's actually a technology that was developed like a hundred years ago, yeah. right? These mechanical watches that don't run on a battery. And I'm like, that's pretty futuristic and old school and quite yeah. an art. And so I, yeah, I've, I, I got bit by that bug pretty good. So are you, so did you get a watch or yeah. are you looking for the right one? No, I've, yeah, I've gone down that road. It's, I, I am a, I am an amateur hobbyist i would say at this point but um but it it was like it's really in the film there's these like it almost is like that has to be a watch guy because it's like this pause and hesitation on 
just a watch and it's a cool watch and i was like kind of looking in there but so talk a little bit about that i mean if if it it cannot have been an arbitrary decision because of the pause twice that happens and talk a little bit about why i do love i do love that watch and it does have some sentimental value to it my mom gave me that watch like Man, like four years ago or something like that. And, um, and it's like engraved on the back and all this. So it is like a important sentimental item yeah. to me, just family. And like, there are some nuggets throughout the, throughout the film that are a callback to just like different parts of my family. Um, you know, what with the special thanks at the end, one of them is my sister, one of them is my godmother, but then also the whole jazz thing, like I said, granddad, yeah. um, a lot of the art in there is, art that was in my grandparents home that i inherited like the the art i inherited um so there is a call there is a little bit of, i'll say that i am proud of that watch okay. but that's not why we put it in there not strictly because of me being proud of it um it's because like we really wanted to emphasize the idea of like rushed and and like and of, of being rushed and to, to get to this place right in running into Chaz, you talk about that facial expression I made of like, I need to go. Like, come on, come on, man. Like, I need to go. And that's the, we were trying to, that energy is something we were trying to like encapsulate with me looking at the watch with the drums in the background being very distracting, just like the ticking of time. Like, let's go, let's go, let's go. It's like the idea of when you run into someone on the street, you aren't paying attention to what they have to say because you just need to get to the next place. Yeah, yeah. And they might be saying stuff that's really, really important or, and then like, maybe it's not until later on that you, you realize like, whoa, that person like really actually had some interesting stuff to say. And I was too rushed to even give it the time of day. And that's why we have the watch. That's why it's like really distracting when Chaz is talking. There's a lot happening on screen. There's crazy drums that are occurring and it almost like overpowers what he's saying because the idea is, is that it wasn't until later when I went back and threw that album on and, and thought about what he said. That's when I realized, like, wait a second, this is really important. And this dude was really trying to tell me something. And I was too busy to even realize it. And even as the viewer, I think when you see the, the movie the first time, like, you don't recognize that. And that's something we wanted. We wanted people to go back and watch it again and be like, oh, my God, that little nugget right there. Like, oh, that little nugget right there. So... That was kind of what the watch was all about and, and the whole vibe of that middle section is all about. Okay. You're officially a watch guy. Like that's the best <laughs> when you're like, my mother gave this to me and it's engraved. Like you're, you're in. And, and by the way, that is absolutely something weirdly about watches that I love is that like they can be infused with this significance. Maybe people in the outdoor community, we don't like pass off beanies right? To be like, we don't pass down beanies from generation to generation. These watches, there's no reason that's not around for 50 or 100 or 150 years, right? And I, yeah. that's something for me, frankly, in our work that's so, it's online, you know, it's, it's digital. It's not these tangible objects. And watches have this, they, they can be passed down. They can be given to friends, you know, they can be engraved on the back. They can become these tokens, these memorials, um, and I, that that stuff. Yeah, it could be some other object, I suppose. But it, in our society, it kind of kind of happens to be watches. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's like it's like a functional piece of jewelry. I think 
Yeah. And um, yeah, it definitely holds a lot of value and meaning. Yeah. I don't know. So is there, are you telling me that there's going to be a blister review, like watch guide? (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. One of the different watches. Dude. um, Yep. Yeah. We should probably go down that road. No, uh, that has never occurred to me. I'm trying, I'm still trying to find the best watch out there. So I mean, maybe it's become fairly clear to people at this point. This is not the most conventional ski film that's ever been created, right? Yeah. Talk a little bit about that fact and what that kind of means to you or feels like to you, the kind of different, the difference that is this film. Yeah. It's not. It's definitely not your traditional ski movie. It's, it's not something that you're going to show <clears throat> at a bar like environment and everyone's going to be like, hooting and hollering throughout it. I mean, I think there's moments of excitement, but yeah, I mean, for me, I think making a ski film that I was going to be the athlete in was never going to be me throwing down crazy tricks because I mean, I have a bag, but I don't have like a really impressive bag compared to other people's bag of tricks. So I think that's like, it was always going to be about a storyline um, because that is something that I think I can offer as uh, as a filmmaker and as a skier is like a cohesive storyline and a kind of a, a compelling and interesting plot. So, so yeah, I think like that's really important. Also, I think it's really important because there's so much out there right now when it comes to, if you're looking for like the most impressive trick or you're looking for like the biggest cliff, there's so many other channels and sources of media that you can, digest that are going to like fulfill that for you or like scratch that itch for you. Um, so I think like in a way having a compelling storyline is something that is maybe missing from a lot of ski movies out there right now. And like as a, as a writer and as a, a like that has maybe want to like bring that in a little bit. So going into mm-hmm. this project, yeah, I definitely like wanted to bring something new to the, the ski space i guess the ski media space yeah yeah i'd say mission accomplished (laughs) glad glad to hear that (laughs) by the way um while you were talking i was just thinking about the fact there's another fairly well-known ski series going on called the 50 project yeah where there's entire episodes that have almost no skiing in them Right. Like I and I love this about what's happening in the landscape of skiing these days. There still absolutely are those films that are putting out mind bending kind of pinnacle cutting edge of what's even humanly possible on a pair of skis or on a snowboard. Right. And God bless the athletes that are doing that stuff. And again, expanding our vision and imagination for what's possible but thank God there's other people doing other stuff and expanding our imagination and vision in other ways too. And I'm glad all of that exists, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, and I think that was like the minute you press play on this film, you're in a different world. And I'm really, really glad that film exists now and 
that you put it together. And I'm glad that this can all work under the umbrella of a ski film. Yeah. Well, first off, thank you. I, I'm glad. I appreciate that. Um, and I also love watching ski movies that are like people throwing down incredibly impressive tricks and just like beautiful, not just beautiful skiing, but like, like breathtaking lines, like mind blowing, uh, tricks, mind blowing the large cliffs. Like I definitely think that that stuff a is incredibly interesting to me, but also is essential to telling the story of skiing. So I absolutely want that to continue. Um, I, I know it will continue because I think there's a huge percentage of people who still want to see that stuff, myself included. Mm-hmm. I also know that that's not going to be me. Like mm-hmm. the type of skiing that I'm doing is a little bit different in that it's, it's not like visually, if you look at me skiing a line, like I think I can ski some cool stuff and you know, I do in the black country journal, but it's not going to like stand out far and above, like all the other people who are skiing at such a high level. You know, there's just so mm-hmm. many, so many people out there who are doing that. So it's really cool to kind of touch on what you were saying. It's so cool that within this ski world, there are so many different things that you can do, whether it's backcountry skiing, resort skiing, park, big mountain, you know, whatever, telly, you know, throw it all out there. Like there's so many different ways that you yeah. can interact with the mountain. And so why, like the ski media landscape should definitely incorporate and include all of those, those pieces. And with the black country journal, like, I knew that it was going to be storyline was going to be the main thing. And that's why I bring in Pat, yeah. the DP, who like absolute huge shout out to him as somebody who's mm-hmm. not even really involved in the ski world. Like he's a snowboarder. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. And he's a good snowboarder. But like mm-hmm. the films that he's making on a daily, on like a monthly basis are like, or the films that he wants to make and is making are like narrative short films that are like artsy. Mm-hmm. And like there's absolutely zero skiing in it whatsoever. So he was a huge part of like helping develop that storyline and we co-directed it together. And then he also just brought this like artful vision that I think somebody who has been making ski movies for the last 10 years probably wouldn't be able to do just because they're so deep in it maybe. And I think that was a crucial part of like getting to where we got to with it all. So I got to like absolutely give a shout out to him. And also like, I mean, so many people on the project, but um, he was definitely a huge part of that. So I want to keep seeing big tricks though. And I want to keep like Sam Cooch's film that came out recently. Mind blowing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. sick. Yeah. Sam's. Yeah. Sam's incredible, but, and, and <laughs> not a, but Sam is incredible period. Right. Yeah. And man, it was a trip revisiting NAR and Cody and I talked about this. Like this movie was not that long ago. It wasn't that long ago. And it felt like kind of, like it sort of was forever ago. Yeah. But if you go back, you don't have to go back very far in the history of ski films where all you were seeing was kind of this pinnacle, this kind of apex skiing, like bleeding edge. And I I mean, maybe this is an obvious point, but 99.999% of us, that's not what we're doing when we're out skiing, yeah. right? And so I do think more films showing or the hardest to imagine trick you've ever seen, there is real room and space for like relatability. Totally. 
right? Like for this whole passion that millions of us have. Like, well, to see that something a bit closer to what it actually looks like if we're out in the backcountry or skiing inbounds or something, I think there's room for that too. And maybe especially when it's done with the compelling story or really smart, you know, smartly written or has a great soundtrack. There's room for this stuff. And I want to see more of that. And I want to see all of it done at a really high level, right? Like, Let's let's do it all at a high level, but let's not think like, oh, I'm not Sam Cooch, so I guess I can't make a ski film. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. I really do feel that. It's like we don't have to just all fit into one mold. And, you know, jumping back to what you're saying about the 50 Project, too, in a way, like, that's also, uh, it's also like unrelatable. Backcountry skiing is kind of unrelatable, too, because there's such a small percentage of people who are doing that at that level, who are walking way into the wilderness and camping at the base of a line and like coming back multiple times a year to go ski that line. Like that's kind of unrelatable. And there's not many people who want to do that. And like, that's kind of more the realm that I'm in, like as a backcountry skier, what I'm trying to do, but also the way that me, I tell my story and the way that Cody and Bjarne, 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 Bjarne. <laughs> we, we were talking, well, let's out Cody some more. Bjarne, you and I were talking, Bjarne was recently on our blister podcast and he's like, it's pronounced Bjarna. And he's like, some of my friends just still call me Bjarne. And we were joking about the fact that, yeah, basically Cody in every 50 project, it's always, he's always calling him Bjarne. <laughs> Cody, it's okay. But anyway, yeah, Bjarna. Yes. Or Bjarne. <laughs> I'm going to just stick with Bjarne because like, that's how I've been saying it. <laughs> but uh, I'm sorry. And you were just I'm hanging sorry. out with him. I'm sorry, Bjarne. <laughs> Bjarne. I'm sorry, man, but I'm just going to keep on going with it. You are Bjarne now to the world. Um, yeah. So, but no, it's Damn like in, one thing, like in just having talked to Bjarne, one thing that he was saying that was really like captivating was the idea that, you know, he goes out there and he shoots this stuff. But in a lot of ways, Cody's the one who's like, apparently putting together these storylines and helping tell that yeah like oh like here's how we're actually going to explain this experience to people in a way that's interesting mm-hmm. and compelling to them so like storytelling comes in so many different forms and yeah um you don't have to be necessarily throwing down the biggest trick you don't necessarily have to be going and skiing like going way deep into the backcountry and skiing some crazy remote line and you can just there is like a, a story about skiing that somebody who's a beginner could even tell. And like, I'm going to kick it back real quick to one of the things that Chaz said that wasn't included in the Black Country Journal, which is he was talking about skiing. And one thing he kept saying to me was like, yo, man, like you got to go back to the green circles. You got to go back to the green circles because that's where you can express yourself. Like you can't be on those double black diamonds because then you're like, that's where it's hard. Like you're like gripped and you're trying to do it. But like on the green circles, man, that's where you're really going to be able to express yourself. And like, that's where the jazz is. That's a real life thing that he said, man. And like, it was, (laughs) it's cool and it's true. So like, let's get a green circle ski movie out here next, you know? (laughs) Ooh, green circle ski movie. I, I think you're already working on another project, but otherwise I'd be like, there's your next project. <laughs> the Green Circle Ski Movie. That's perfect, right? actually. That's that's a hell of a title. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, cool. Hey, I wanna I wanna let you get going here in a sec, but um talk a little bit about the reception of this film. First of all, when did you first kind of drop it? Uh so first came out April 
uh, first premiere was like April 15th in Carbondale. Um, and then that was, we've been doing a festival tour basically for the last like however many months. And we dropped it online last Wednesday. So November 8th was when yeah. it actually premiered yeah. online on YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. Happy with the reception of the film? Surprised some of the concerns you had? Did were the, did those materialize? Tell us what it's been like. What have you seen? Yeah. So it's been interesting because like completely unexpectedly, first off, like I wasn't even going to apply to BAMP because I was like, I don't know, like if this mm. is going to happen. And I had some friends who encouraged me, like you got to apply to BAMP, man, like you should do it. So I barely squeaked into the BAMP like application window and we got in and we showed it next to all these like, you know, two year projects, high budget ski films. And I was like, there's a, I mean, I'm going home. Cause a, like I'm only going to be here for three days I, and I have more work I got to do. And then, you know, come and find out like we won. And so that was just a total, like blew my mind. Cause I was just not anticipating that. Like, I love the project. I think yeah. it's awesome, but I wasn't expecting us cause we had kind of gotten, we had, we had already not won any awards, all the other festivals we were at. And so I was like, yeah, there's, we're not going to win it at the huh. biggest one. And then we did. And at first I was like, this is <laughs> awesome. And then, and then I was like, okay, the expectations for this film just went through the roof, I feel like. So, like, we're, we're dropping it in two days, and it just won this award. Uh-huh. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> hopefully everyone will see this, and they're like, what? This one, bam? Like, what the heck? Um, so I was a little bit, like, imposter sy- syndrome status for a little bit there, and just nervous about, like, all the, the kind of hype around it leading up to the drop. And then, yeah, we released it online, and, you know, we don't, ha- we don't have, like, a huge marketing budget. You know, this was done through my like independent production company, Uhuru Mountain, you know, which we're not level one or we're not uh, any, we don't have like a huge brand backing, you know, it was on Forefront's social media. Uh, it was on Forefront's YouTube channel. And that was like our main, you know, promotion leading up to it. It's just my own Instagram and Forefront's Instagram and a couple of my other sponsors like Straith and like Hyperlight reposted it. So, I mean, we're definitely getting a lot of viewership on it. And also just like, sure, like it doesn't have like some monster level of views on it. Like I think in seven days, we did 10K, which is good. I mean, that's way more than I was anticipating. If you compare it to like a huge ski movie, it's probably a lot less. But what's been really impactful is just the amount of people who are really well known in the ski industry and have been following snow sports for so many years who actually like have hit me up and been like, yo, this is incredible. And like, we need to see more of this in the ski world. And like, this is inspiring me to like do like something different with what I'm doing in snow sports. And like, that has been just honestly the most, one of the biggest things for me is just like hearing that from some people who I've looked up to for, for years, whether it's like people in ski media or it's like athletes or it's like people own companies. Um, so that's been huge. And, um, I think that's really important. I think that it it just speaks to like, this is something that does need to happen more and that we need in the ski space is these kind of like more artful or not like, I don't even say more artful. I just want to say like that kind of draw from uh, what's happening in like narrative film or what's happening in like, maybe like music videos and stuff like that. Different, different yeah. forms. Uh, and another word that comes to mind is just something that's different, different, right? Different, good, different. And it is so funny <laughs> thinking back to the part of our conversation where we were like business school, should I have done it or not? It's like, well, 
certainly in entrepreneurship courses, one of the things I hope they're telling folks is like, you better find your point of differentiation. If you're starting a company or coming out with a new product or coming out with a new film and, and it's weird, right? We have these pressures. Like you said, you're like, I'm not Sam Cooch. I can't make this, the ski movie he makes. And it's like, we don't need that. He's Sam's doing it at a super high level, you know, like we need something else. And I think for, aspiring filmmakers out there just keep that in mind like what is your point of differentiation what is your perspective like while the temptation is to co like fit in with the crowd we we don't need more of the same absolutely right and um yeah so hopefully i do think this is going to be one of those films where i think it's going to have a long shelf life. I think people will continue to discover it and check it out. And hopefully it does have that effect of reminding folks like, wow, that really was real different. Maybe my green circle beginner <laughs> movie or whatever real different idea somebody else has, like that can serve as that inspiration. Like let's not just do the lemming thing and try to all go cookie cutter into this space that's that's already small enough right yeah. like yeah that would be really cool if there is one thing that like that uh would be meaningful for me as one of the main people behind this film it would be that like people go back to this continue to watch it and then it has like some sort of impact on the types of ski movies that are that people are making and it inspires other people to make something that is like you said continuing to push into different spaces you mentioned a second project. You want to talk about this? You ready to talk about this? You still figuring it out? Where are you at? Yeah, I'm, I'm like, I, I'm not going to talk too much about it. Um, because, like, I've, I'm of the mind state of, like, just, if I talk too much about it, then sometimes it's, like, kind of nerve-wracking. Like, I just want to do it. And... Mm-hmm. Then like mm-hmm. right when, it, when it's done and I know it's coming out, then I'll start talking about it. But I will say this. I do see the Black Country Journal as part, as one part of a larger story that I'm looking to continue to tell. And it all falls into this similar category of looking at skiing as a something that's influenced and connected to an art form that's super important to me. Um, and it's not necessarily jazz, Mm. but it's, it's something along those lines. So I'm just trying to continue to tell that story Mm. and, um, yeah, Mm. we're gonna keep on going with it and I might not even be in the next one. Who knows? (laughs) But I do want to keep on making films that tell the story. It's just going to be Chaz. It's just going to be Chaz. He needs his own, he needs his own movie. Nobody else in it. Yeah. I think I hope, hopefully I mean Chaz has a full blown music like music career, but yeah, I think that you know maybe this will help, hopefully kickstart Chaz's acting career because he he deserves to be in more movies. He's such a character. Hey man, um, this has been really fun. Uh, it's uh, it's great to connect with you. I guess we talked about it before we hit the record buttons, but it was really fun hearing sort of your personal experience with blister and like when we kind of got on your radar and i i really enjoyed all those kind of stories and anecdotes too so um 
really glad we can make this happen. Anybody who's listened this deep and hasn't hit pause to go actually watch the film, like, wow, I don't know what you're doing, but um, now would be a good time, you know, to go hit play on the Black Country Journal. But um, I'm excited for more people to see it. I'm really excited that you're coming yeah. to the summit. If I don't see you before, I'll see you in early February and we actually get to go oh, skiing yeah. together. That's pretty great. Um, excited to learn more about your story and your vision of some of this stuff and a little bit of insight into where you might be headed next. That's uh, that's all pretty great. So thanks Absolutely. for taking the time. It's a pleasure being on here. And yeah, definitely like we were saying before, kind of a wild full circle moment to eight years ago when I first walked into a ski shop and applied for a job and they were like, you should probably check out this blister you know, gear review. Um, that's going to help you a lot. And just absolutely geeking out on that um, book and like reading all the way through it. And yeah, just that was the first step in me really diving into skiing, like into like the gear behind skiing. And now to be on, you know, the huh. podcast is pretty awesome. So just speaks to like the, huh. this community and the fact that like, I don't know, if you do something for long enough and you, you care enough about something, like eventually, you know, it mm. all kind of comes together. So yeah, I'm, Jonathan, thanks yeah. so much for having me. I'm really psyched to be able to talk about this. And um, hopefully this will be the first of many conversations that we'll be having out there, both on the slopes, but maybe on the podcast again. Who knows? Love it. I love it. Let's keep it going. We definitely have more questions that we didn't get to today. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll be, uh, this won't be our last conversation by any means. Absolutely not. Thanks again. Great to connect, everybody. It's called the Black Country Journal. We'll have a link to it in the show notes of this episode. Check it out. Come to the Blister Summit and come meet Mallory and come ski with me and Mallory. Heck yeah. <laughs> Open invitation. So, uh, hey, man, thanks again. Uh, congrats on the success of this and for the creation of this. And uh, I look forward to the next conversation. Thanks, Jonathan. I'll see you at Summit. Well, that's it for this edition of Blister Cinematic. Thanks so much to Mallory for the great conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And thanks to you for listening. And as a way to say thanks to those of you who are still listening to the very end here, we're going to go ahead and tell you folks what our next film is going to be. It should be dropping a week from today, next Tuesday. And our plan is to cover one of the wildest, weirdest, and arguably greatest film in the history of snow sports, Apocalypse Snow. We've got some pieces that need to come together for this to happen, but that is our plan. Our mission is clear. And for those of you who know, you know. And if you don't know, go online, go watch yourself Apocalypse Snow, prepare to have your mind blown, and then we're going to talk about it if some things come together. <laughs> <laughs> a week from today. You all are the best. Thank you so much. And we will talk to you again real soon.